No my hi to my, my name is Jeremy and this is the Maximum Institute podcast. This month we're keeping it in-house with a special exit interview with Alex Pink, Maxim's outgoing CEO. With me today is Alex and our interim CEO, Joanne Abernethy, in a conversation that will cover Alex's experience in coming to work for Maxim Institute in 2005, being a researcher, a policy and research manager, acting CEO, and then CEO for over six years. It is a period that saw huge changes across many different seasons for Maxim and also in New Zealand's political and cultural life. So to start us off, Alex, welcome. What were you expecting or looking forward to when you walked through those big wooden doors on your first day back in December 2005? I think most of all, I was looking forward to doing some work that I thought had real meaning and real purpose. It might help to explain that if I say that I'd been practicing commercial law before then. Um, not, not that that work doesn't have uh, meaning and purpose of its own kind. Commercial lawyers, <laughs> if you're listening. You know, I, I really believed then and still believe in the mission that Maxim has, which is to try and grapple with some of the, the big ideas and the big issues that are shaping New Zealand's future. And I just, I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, so I was looking forward to doing that and working with a pretty amazing group of people. So when you look at Maxim that you joined that day, and now fast forward to now, what are the biggest changes to who we are and how we do things that you've seen? There have been a lot of changes. I mean, we're talking about a period of nearly nearly 15 years. Many of the changes, I think, are, are a response to changes in the environment that we're in. So the way the way that we communicate, I mean, even the fact that we're doing a podcast now. There's no podcast when I joined. There's no Facebook when I joined, come to think of it. The environment has changed enormously, and, and I think it's put a massive premium on both having something of substance to say, but also being able to say it in a way where uh, people trust what you have to say. Um, and they'll actually pay some attention to it in, in an incredibly crowded public square. So that's that's been one of the big shifts for us. I also joined Maxim at a, at a point where we were trying to really deepen the the rigor uh, and the credibility of our of our research, um, and we've put a really high premium on that over the years. So to give you an example, you know, not only is everything we do exhaustively researched, all our major research reports and papers and policy recommendations are all, you know, externally peer-reviewed by people who have got real expertise, including people who we know will disagree with us. Because we know that if we're actually going to be of service, then the work needs to actually have, you know, real real sort of strength and robustness to it. So it has to be tested really well. And that's been something that we've maintained as it's the foundation of our work. It's, it's what gives it integrity, I think. And that's really important to us. You say that almost 15 years. I mean, in that time, there's been three different governments. Um, there's been any number of different like major political issues that have popped up and gone away or some of them have stuck around. What are, you know, what are the big positive and negative trends that you've seen in politics over your time at Maxim? It's often the case that the positives and the negatives are really kind of quite closely intertwined. So I, I think we have extraordinary access to, to public leaders in New Zealand. Um, this was actually brought home to me once by my grandma, who was, you know, who was commenting that she's from, um, grew up in England, and saying that, you know, over there, the, the opportunity to actually connect with a member of parliament is, is vanishingly small, whereas here we have just so much opportunity by contrast, not, not just to connect with MPs, but actually to participate in what, in what parliament's thinking about. The downside of that, I think, and, and it's related to those trends in the media environment that I talked about is, you know, with the rise of social media, I think there's a way in which that increasing access can almost sort of devalue the currency a little bit. And I'll try and explain what I mean. So to give you one example, with MPs on Twitter these days, uh, the Minister of Justice last year, Andrew Little, was on a, a radio show where the hosts, for some reason, referred to him as Daddy Thick Snack. And um, he, for reasons that I just... I, just bewilder me, thought that it was a good idea to change his Twitter profile name to uh, Daddy Thicksnack. 
And there's so there's something that goes hand in hand there with like you can actually engage directly with MPs on Twitter and you can get responses from them. But at the same time, it's an environment in which people do stuff like that, which I think devalues their their role and the the status that they should have in society, which is really one I think of being able to to inspire are you just sort of lamenting that we don't have sort of the old gray heads of wisdom in these roles and and kind of a perceived elite sort of status for people who are making decisions people kind of have i guess i mean in many ways rightly critiqued as making them kind of very insulated from the real world issues and that are really affecting people so kind of how do you grapple with that criticism yeah i'm definitely not advocating for elitism i think the the issue and the challenge is you know it's been recognized for a long long period of time think about rudyard Kipling's poem, If, he talks about the um, the importance of being able to walk with kings and yet not lose the common touch. I think that's the balance that we want to, to straddle. My, I guess my concern is just if walking only with kings tends you towards elitism, that we might be tending a little too far in the other direction at the moment. Because I think our politicians, senior public servants, other people with significant positions of public leadership, they have amazing responsibilities. We entrust them to make really significant decisions for the country. And so we actually need to be able to look to them and know that they are people of integrity and credibility who aren't wasting time on trivia and who we can genuinely be inspired by because ultimately leadership is about inspiring other people towards a positive vision of the future and that's that's one of the things that I I suppose I have as a little bit of a concern about our political culture. Do you think that you are what you're talking about is you know that's John Key going on The Rock and talking about his shower habits and stuff like that you know and this is something that's been going on in the social media era of politics we're going from this idea that politicians should be one of us you should be able to imagine sitting down for a beer with the person that you're going to vote for um are you do you think that you're just in the vanishing minority of people who want states statesmen and women maybe i am i don't know but john key was going to be one of my other examples by the way just to just to show that this is like a you know i'm an equal opportunity critic this is on both sides of the political spectrum i mean he got into massive trouble because he was on the rock and and they uh, lured him into a stunt making jokes about prison rape you know this i just Maybe I'm old-fashioned. If, if it's elitist to think that the prime minister being lured into stunts about prison rape is, is a bad idea, then you know maybe I'll, I'll have to own that. Again, I, I just think there is there is something that you have to be able to hold the two sides together here to actually be able to understand and engage with the experiences of everyday life. We, of course, hundred percent, we want that in our political leaders, but there also has to be something where you kind of show that you have got what it takes, that you are that you are worthy of the extra responsibility that, that's being given to you. Different people strike the balance in different ways, but there is a balance to be struck. And I think that's that's my concern. If we fail to see that there's a balance, then I think we're in trouble. It's also not just about individual people. I think, you know, you look at the some of the structural incentives built into MMP, the way the party vote consolidates power in, in the party hierarchy, the way it sort of something I wrote uh, recently talked about the way that it forces new ideas and challenges to the status quo out to the margins of minor party manifestos. What that does, I think, is it tends to make our, our major political parties kind of hug the middle ground more and more tightly and it becomes harder and harder to distinguish them from each other, which then means that the key difference they have is they're kind of the personal brands of the people who are leading them. And that's when you get elections that are fought out in the pages of Women's Weekly rather than really on, on a substantive contest of ideas. And what's interesting about that is that, uh, just to extend this out slightly, is that it's almost like we're not actually arguing about whether or not a minister of the crown is elite or not, because by definition, they are actually part of the elite. You know, like it's very, very few people in the country who have, who hold an enormous amount of power about what goes on. And it's almost like 
you kind of want someone to act with yeah the dignity that that their role actually requires and to and to go oh I, I recognize that this has been vested in me and this power and authority has vested in me rather than going oh no I'm not really that elite like I'm just like you when actually they do hold an enormous amount of power how I hear what you're saying is more that instead of going on the radio and joking around it would actually be more you know, getting into the everyday lives of people who need help. There's been controversy about um, the Prime Minister not going to Ihumatau, um, not um, watching the Oranga Tamariki uplift video. Regardless of what you think about those particular issues, actually being abreast of what is going on for people who are suffering, who are experiencing injustice, who, who have complaint in society, that, that's getting more to the heart of what it means to, and it's more directly related to their role as well. I think our leaders definitely should have a sense of humour. I mean, I think if you, if you, if you didn't, um, that would probably be a disqualifier. So it's, you know, perhaps it's about the, the kind of humour, the, the, you know, the, the degree, the kind of forum and, and the kind of things that you're, that you're using that for. But I mean, just to the point that you, that you started with um, as a minister of the Crown, a member of the elite, if you're getting picked up and dropped off in a Crown limo, I don't think there's much argument about, about whether you have a special position in society. And so for me, the question is, how do you how do you be worthy of that of that special responsibility because it's an amazing responsibility and and we need people to serve us in those roles and i'm really grateful for the fact that people will put themselves forward to do that i think it's an incredibly hard role from what i can see and it's easy for critics like me to kind of sit back and say you know they should be doing it like this or, or not like that i do think there's some sort of norms of public life that it's it's healthy to keep coming back to and keep talking about so we can make sure we've got the right kind of political culture what about when you think about the future? What do you think the big issues might be? The areas of public debate that might shape New Zealand for the next wee while? So at, at a macro level, one of the things that does concern me, and as I sort of think back on 14-ish years, you know, working in public policy, working at a think tank, is I feel like our public policy responses are often lagging the issues. Um, so it just kind of doesn't matter what the issues are. We often seem to be lagging behind them in our in our response, which I think creates a bit of a risk that rather than solving problems, we're just we're warehousing them. Um, I'll, I'll try and give you an example of what I mean because it's a little bit abstract. But if you think of something like the Child Poverty Reduction Act, obviously a, a major piece of legislation for the current government, a, a significant issue for the Prime Minister, but one that despite the name doesn't itself do anything to reduce child poverty. It really just sets out measures and indicators. So it's, it's another way of sort of describing an issue uh, without necessarily grappling with the causes um, that, that might be leading us there. And you know, one of the reasons why I, I pick on that issue is People have been talking about and concerned about child poverty the entire time I've been I've been doing this work, and you know, not not the needle doesn't seem to have shifted all that far. So I do have a bit of a concern about that. If we were going to talk about particular issues, um, I think there's some demographic issues uh, that that come to mind. You know, particularly for the regions, stagnant and aging populations um, in, in around many areas of the country over the next sort of 30, 40 years, I think are going to pose a big challenge. I think as well about issues to do with sort of uh, digital technology and the attention economy, um, which I think is sort of on the horizon in, in various ways, including data privacy, including the potential effects on um, you know growing minds. And it's the kind of thing where I think, gosh, there's all these concerns now about what, what we're doing to young kids in terms of anxiety and the way their brains work. And yet we've been shoving iPads into classrooms for a long time now. Again, we just seem to be lagging um, the actual issue. Those are representative issues. Um, but the, the big kind of one for me is, is just how do we actually get upstream from some of these problems? Um, because I, I feel like I hear, have heard over the years a lot of people talking about their desire to do that, and yet we don't actually seem to have advanced. 
I mean, related to that is, I mean, obviously we work at a think tank, so it's part of our role to, you know, think about these things and, and produce research. And, I, and as, as we've done that over the years, um, it's, we've, you know, it's not just producing good work and having good ideas, but it's then about actually getting that research and getting that analysis into the hands of people who, who might actually make a decision or might actually advise someone or write some policy that comes into effect. And as we've done that work and as you've sort of seen it uh, in different ways and in different methods over the years, um, what insight have you gleaned into how the political sausage is made? Well, the intersection of politics and policy is is not pretty. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, and, and I think some that are, you know, that, that are very valid. If you look at people in significant positions of public leadership, they're incredibly busy. You know, a member of parliament is, is concerned with um, policy issues, legislation before parliament, his or her constituents. They, they just have so much information coming at them all the time. Uh, so I think a big part of the question is, well, how do you actually present information um, in a way that's actually that's actually genuinely helpful? One of my former colleagues used to, to put it in terms of, what will they actually thank you for? rather than think, oh, geez, another thing I've got to wade through. So I think that's that's one of the issues. Um, you know, we, we all are in a noisy and crowded public square, and, and some people more than others. So you have to be uh, helpful <laughs> rather than uh, rather than giving them stuff that's not that useful to them. I think another another big sort of issue is what's called the iron law of politics. Um, I think I'm quoting Mark Preble there. Uh, you know, basically this idea that politicians can only do what voters will allow them to do. So, so there's this interplay between politicians leading but also being responsive to the general public and there are some issues where you know they may well want to take some action in what they think are the, are the country's best interests but they know they just can't go there um, because of you know where the nation as a whole is at or at least you know the median uh, the median voter I think I think that's really tricky um, there are some big questions there around how how do politicians and other public leaders how do they actually lead public sentiment and how responsive they are to it um, I also think, I'm umming and ahhing about whether this is a fair critique, but I think it is, so I'll make it. Uh, I, I also think, you know, we've seen a lot of politicians kind of hoarding political capital for no other reason than to have political capital. And to get re-elected. Well, essentially, yeah. To hold power for the sake of holding as power. They, as long as they can. Yeah, and, and look, to make it to make it um, concrete, I mean, I think this is this would be my sort of big critique of the key government, um, that I think they actually had opportunities to, to do a bit more than they did, and they didn't use the political capital uh, that, that they had. Of course, I you know I don't get to see behind the scenes. I don't know what trade-offs uh, were being made, but it, it does it does sort of beg the question. You know, what are you what are you in politics for? And I guess every uh, politician in every party will perhaps have slightly different answers to that. That also brings me to something though that I think is related to the question you asked a moment ago, Joanne, about you know big issues and, and trends that are shaping the future. And that is that I think um, there's also a big contest between sort of, sort of the vision of life that you have. Um, and this is an issue for all of us, not just for, for politicians, obviously. But th perhaps the big trend that I see is a conflict between a vision which is, is kind of grounded in solidarity and connectedness between people and a vision that's much more individualistic. And you see this very clearly in an issue like euthanasia, um, where on the one hand you've got people sort of saying, you know, I can, I can make a life or death choice here and it won't affect other people. Or, or if it does, I don't care. It's my choice and I want this choice. Whereas on the other side... And I think this is probably the minority position. You've got people saying, well, those kind of choices do affect other people. They are social choices because we're social beings. And we have to take that into account in our law and, and policy making. That, to be honest, is, is a view that, uh, you know, holds a lot more resonance for me. But, it, but I, as I say, particularly when you look at the way that issue's gone, I feel like it's a minority view. And also not just, I mean, I think just listening to you say that, it's not just someone's choice 
that has an effect on someone else but it's actually the context that allows someone to make that choice actually communicates something about who we are and, and, and what we what we're okay with as well. Thinking back to sort of your conversation before about the big trends, I think one of these things is, you know, the fact that we can't, we don't seem to be able to have uh, open political discussions around visions of life. We can have d political discussions that touch on specific policy issues and we can talk about, well, I think that's good or I, I think this particular, you know, legalizing this or criminalizing this is a good or bad thing, but actually, getting to sort of hash out like well what you know what is the broader vision of life that you have and 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 where sort of authority comes from and where it doesn't and all that sort of stuff we don't talk about that and we don't we don't really have the ability to ask politicians what they think in any broad kind of way because we've lost the ability to sort of have those grand visions of life be accepted into discussion in public to to a larger extent yeah i i think that's true it is it is difficult having these kind of conversations because they introduce questions of value belief faith, all the kinds of things that are, that are actually really difficult to talk about in public life. What we're ultimately getting into here are much bigger questions of, of culture as well. If you think of culture as sort of, you know, to quote a couple of definitions, as, as what we think of as our horizons of possibility or frameworks of meaning in life, these are the sort of things that are often buried underneath the surface of the policy debates that we're having. And a lot of our public discourse is, is really shallow and it focuses on not even the policy, but the politics basically because it's much easier to talk about. It's a lot less difficult to kind of get your head around the, the political trade-offs and, and the horse trading between parties and all of that sort of thing, rather than you know the, the issues of substance that require real expertise for us to talk about. And then underneath them, all those, those basic questions of, well, what do I believe about the world? Um, those questions of value and principle. So I, I think this is a way in which, you know, it, it, again, it's one of those macro trends, the, the superficiality of our political discourse is... Uh, I think, not setting us up well to actually deal with some of the big issues that are facing us. So just jumping off of that into a discussion around visions of life, I think it's hopefully safe to say that you are personally politically conservative in a traditional sense of the word, and that this has been difficult to square with the particular politicians and political movements that have claimed that term conservative over the last few years, both here and around the world. How would you describe what it means to be conservative in New Zealand for yourself? And what what places do you draw inspiration and direction in that? Yeah, uh, first of all, yes, fair to say, personally, I'm, I'm politically conservative. Um, and I'm glad you're giving me a chance to define that. Because, you know, usually when people hear that word, they sort of think, you know, or typically they think of US conservatives, I think. So, you know, Donald Trump, the right to bear arms, all, all of that sort of thing, which I would say is, is very much not what I think of. So, I mean, to me, the, the idea of a conservative idea about life and about society is, is one that is grounded in the dignity of every person. Um, so there's a recognition there that every person is equal, um, has the same value, has the same status, and that there are, there's a way to live that produces human flourishing. And really our, our task as humans is to find and live in accordance with our full human potential. And then that kind of structures and norms what government and other institutions of society should do. And it's very much a role not only for government, it, it's a recognition that society is richly textured. Um, we need not just government, but we need a functional civil society, we need unions, uh, we need business organisations, we need churches and mosques and synagogues, uh, we need sports clubs, uh, we need voluntary organisations, we need strong families. All of these things together make up um, a strong society. And a lot of our public debate I think we kind of the, the debate is about the individual and about the state and that's basically it 
um, and it's missing that entire rich middle ground, which I think is is what a conservative political vision can bring uh, to the table. Just to jump in there, I mean, I think one of the places that, um, in everything you just said, that would be a sticking point for a lot of people is when you say, and this is, I'm asking you to clarify this because I think that it's worth clarifying, uh, when you said there is a vision of a flourishing life. Um, and, and I think that the way that the conservative position has been characterized and communicated um, around the world a lot of the time is that there is a, there is only one way of living that is, that is okay or that um, can, can fit, essentially. Um, and so in terms of actually growing a particular you know, definition of what it means to be conservative in Aotearoa New Zealand um, now, um, how has that understanding changed and over, over time and, and what, yeah, where have you drawn um, to make it particular to this place? Thanks for the clarification. There's definitely not one vision that is like, this is the way to live, that like, like there's a blueprint for life or society or anything like that. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really core to a, to a politically conservative vision, or at least the kind I hold, is a, a, a really high emphasis on freedom. Um, we have to have freedom as people to be able to um, choose to choose to pursue um, the good in our lives. Um, because if we don't, um, if somebody else is sort of making the choices for us, then in some way with, it goes back to that that comment that I made about living up to full human potential. Um, I think we're given freedom to an agency to choose and to act. And if we don't use that or if we're not allowed to use that in some way, then we are actually in some ways being forced to act in a way that's that's less than fully human. So, you know, th these are obviously all sort of fairly abstract principles. So to your question, what does it look like to outwork this? That That is uh, a question I think that has to be answered differently in different places at different times. The principles have to be kind of contextualized and made local. So if you look at the US at the moment, conservatives over there are having a really interesting debate about the, the Reagan consensus of the 1980s. And they are kind of going, well, some of these things made sense back then, but you know, a lot of our politicians are still shackled to ideas that made sense in the 1980s, but don't make sense in the, in the 21st century. And we actually need to forge something different here. And that's, you can actually see political conservatives and their, their movements fracturing, almost going to a state of civil war over these, you know, trying to work out what does it look like to try and live out these truths here and now today. For New Zealand, I think um, I don't see the same kind of conversation happening here. It's partly because we don't have the same crisis, um, aka Donald Trump, to precipitate that kind of conversation, and we should all be very grateful for that. I, I think we, you know, we need to be asking exactly the same questions. What does it look like to try and outwork these visions here? I mean, in many ways, I've, I've been really intrigued and interested and educated by um, just the more I've got to, to learn about our Māori in a kind of a, a, a traditional Māori way of, of thinking about the world and thought there's, there's a huge amount of resonance here with the way that I think about the world, um, both in terms of sort of the givenness of the world and um, another sort of core idea in conservative thought, which I didn't touch on earlier, but it's the idea that you are um, stewards or custodians, kaitiaki, um, you know, of, of a particular land or a particular set of circumstances for a period of time. You inherited those from somebody. You're going to pass them on to somebody else. You don't own them in, in, in the kind of, in an absolute sense. You own them temporarily. And so the question is, what are you going to do with those things in the time that you have them? How are you going to improve them, safeguard them, renew them, restore them, and pass them on better than you found them to the people who are coming after you? So I, I think there's... there's potentially some really kind of fruitful conversations to be had there um, in a real process of, of learning for people who hold to a, a political view and um, between with people who hold to a, a traditional Māori worldview. 
And it's it's a process that for me, one of the people who's been who's really influenced my thinking on public policy in the last few years was uh, Sir Peter Sharple. So he gave our Sir John Graham lecture a few years ago in, in 2015. And it was it was incredibly powerful. Um, I've often said it was an experience more than it was a lecture. But but you know he recited the history of Maori coming to New Zealand and said, why don't people know this? You know about Magna Carta. You know about the English Civil War. You know about the French Revolution. Why don't you know these things? And it um, it sparked. Um, you know, that, that was part of the reason I, I spent a couple of years learning introductory uh, Te Reo Māori. But that was one of the catalysts um, towards doing that. Because the big question for me is, what does it mean to be of this land? and to hold a, a set of ideas that actually make sense in this context. I don't have a, uh, I suppose, a, a 100% worked out answer to that question yet, um, but I think that's a really important journey and a really important conversation we need to be having. You were talking earlier, um, before we talked about conservative thought, about the political capital, hoarding a political capital, and um, the fact that politicians are so busy and they've got so much on their plate they've got the constituents to think about how does that make you feel as are you hopeful about politics I feel like there's a lot of disillusionment amongst um, people about oh it's not even point in vo- voting because of these very reasons it doesn't feel like anybody's actually getting anything done because they're too busy being political H- how can people engage in a way or what would you suggest to people should they be hopeful about politics or is there no point in, in participating I definitely suggest that people be hopeful. I, I've tried to cultivate a stance that I call hopeful realism. So, you know, you, you, you see the issues and you acknowledge the issues, but you also see the potential. So, you know, as I said before, both there's a flip side, an upside and a downside to things like access to political and, and other senior leaders. And, you know, so it's, it's, not, it's not all bad, I guess. And I mean, I, one of the ways that I think about this is it's easy to focus on what's wrong. Um, but, you know, when we look around, yes, we have social problems, but we're also living in a peaceful, prosperous, developed country. You know, I, I think about my grandfathers who went off and served in the, in the Second World War. And I, I think, gosh, nobody's asked me to do anything like that. Nobody's had to ask me to do anything like that. So, you know, we, we actually have a huge amount to be thankful for. Um, I think our system of government, by and large, works, works well. You know, there's always stuff that could that could be improved, and I'd, I'd probably say our system of government, I think, works a little bit better than our political culture does. But I, th- I think there's a lot that sh- people should be grateful for, that I'm certainly grateful for, and that I think should give us enormous hope at the same time as we are realistic about um, about the issues that we see. And that's the case not just when you think about politics and MPs. I mean, the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about, because part of our job at Maxim, you know, as well as doing the research, is to then share that with with the general public and you know of course as I say the the sort of challenge that political leaders are facing is is the same challenge that everybody's facing really there's a ton of information you can't pay attention to it all you need to figure out what matters and and who you can and who you can trust Um, and so again my my thinking about you know uh, engaging with uh, with the public and the media is again this sort of combination of hope uh, and realism which I I say I hope I'll be able to maintain. Realistically, perhaps I'll be able to maintain. Um, but I think is is better than either optimism or, or pessimism. Is it safe to say that you don't think that we need to go down to 99 MPs? Yeah, very safe to say. I mean, I, I think if anything, there's a case for increasing the size of parliament. I say that because I think there's some particular kind of structural incentives around party list and the size of cabinet and so on, which which tend to make MPs a little bit too beholden to party hierarchy and that tend to therefore stifle independent thought. In Parliament, one of the ways that you could um, that you could guard against that would be if the the size of Parliament were 
to increase. And I also think there's a there's an argument to think about that in the coming years as the size of the population continues to increase as well. It kind of makes sense that the group, the body that represents the nation would increase in size as the population increases in size. I mean, obviously, thinking about that, the, um, the amount of work and the, the people who actually make our core decisions for, for government in terms of what actually gets passed through parliament is usually the executive. So it's usually the, the, the ministers, the cabinet. I'm not completely certain on this, but it doesn't seem that cabinet has really grown in the same way. And even even though we've got you know all these new ideas and new issues and even new areas of responsibility that become really important for society. I mean, do you think that cabinet or the ministerial portfolios need to be spread across a wider group of people so that there is that that attention that's able to be given to each issue it's an interesting question i I hadn't i hadn't thought about spreading cabinet portfolios across a wider group of people if if anything kind of think there's a case for having a smaller cabinet and having fewer people in it Um, again this is an argument that i heard from jeremy waldron who's a professor of legal and, and political philosophy uh, but he kind of made the point that you know if if you're the governing party then or coalition of parties then by default you have um, you know around 50% or a bit more than 50% obviously of of parliament at the moment you have around 24 ministerial positions some inside cabinet some out and you know if you do the maths that basically means every MP's got a sort of a 50% chance of making it into cabinet which is where all the decision making power and prestige lies so you've got real incentives not to rock the boat um, and so I think actually having a, a smaller cabinet and fewer cabinet portfolios would be one way to deal with that, uh, to deal with that problem, which at the moment gives party leaders an, an awful lot of power um, in a way that I think is, is probably not really in, in our long-term democratic interests. Who do you think have been the most effective ministers and politicians over your time while you've been here at Maxim? Two names kind of come to mind when you ask that question, and they're, and they're quite contrasting. The, the first would be Bill English. I think, you know, the, the kind of challenges that he had to, uh, to face and engage with as Minister of Finance and Deputy Prime Minister um, and ultimately Prime Minister were, were significant. If you think about coming into office with the global financial crisis having gotten underway in 2008 and really really uh, sort of biting in 2009, the earthquakes in Canterbury a couple of years after that, you know, those, those are some major, major challenges uh, to have to deal with as, as Finance Minister and, you know, certainly the public perception, or in political circles anyway, often often sort of credits English as one of the people who was, you know, really behind the the, the substantive changes that um, that did go through under the key government. Uh, and you think about something like the social investment approach, which you know has its critics, but I think is a, a really in- innovative and really genuine way to try and do something different about these kind of big social problems that I was describing earlier where we don't seem to have shifted the needle very much um, over the years. I think there's a lot to be said about just trying something different like that and and trying to uh, reorient politics and, and public policy around it. The other name that comes to mind is Helen Clark, who I think was an incredibly effective uh, prime minister. And perhaps I should say, you, you know, your question when you say uh, effective, I'm I'm thinking, you know, good at good at getting certain outcomes. And I think the Clark government made um, significant change in New Zealand. Um, and you can think of that in terms of the, the social legislation um, that was passed, things like the expansion of, of working for families, um, repeal of the Employment Contracts Act and replacement with the Employment Relations Act, you know, ac- across just across the board. The government that she led made enormous change. And she also had to deal with, you know, um, instability of coalition partners and, and all of that kind of thing. So I think she was a, um, a pretty awe-inspiring uh, leader and, and one who I think aspiring public leaders would do well to learn some lessons from. 
What about Maxim over your time? Uh, what are you being most proud of? The things that Maxim's contributed to, the work it's produced, the things it's said or what it's been able to shape? I think I'm, I'm most proud of the way that I think we've been true to who we are in, in the time that I've been involved. Even when it's been costly, to give a, a couple of examples, we, we took on the issue of three strikes, um, for example, and, and because some people you know, perceive us as being politically conservative in a particular way, they were very surprised that we would be opposed to the three strikes policy because you know, they sort of thought, well, most people like you are, are strongly for this. Why on earth would be, you be opposed? But our reasons for opposition were just directly out of the core of who we are. We basically saw it as an unjust um, piece of legislation. And we took that on knowing that it would be controversial, knowing that it would cost us support. Um, but we did it because we felt like it was the right thing to do. The same was true of opposing the, the less high-profile regulatory responsibility bill, which was later renamed to the Regulatory Standards Bill. That was, honestly, there was a lot of relational fallout from doing that, but we just we looked at that and we thought, this is, this is a bad piece of legislation. We made those decisions knowing there would be cost, there was cost. I mean, you know, and there was we lost financial support. There was relational cost to that, but we stuck with those issues, and we continue to advocate the positions that we did because we thought that was ultimately in. It sounds a bit pious saying it, but we thought it was ultimately in New Zealand's best interest to hold these positions. And I think I'm I'm really proud of that because I think that kind of integrity is is sort of what makes or breaks you doing the kind of work that we do. If you if you don't have it, if you're not prepared to make those stands, then I think it sort of. It really undermines everything else uh, that you do. In addition, I just say I think you know the obviously I'm biased here, but I, th I think the quality of our research, the way that we've tried to kind of fill gaps in public debate and analysis, I'm really proud of. Uh, if you take the work that we did analysing the provincial growth fund, for example, I, you know I haven't seen anybody else produce that kind of depth and rigor of research in the same kind of timely way that we did, uh, that could actually you know be of assistance to people who are having to make the best decisions they can now about about a major issue that's going to either set New Zealand up well for the future uh, or not. So there's sort of a combination of, of the depth of the work, but also also being responsive. And honestly, that's a hard balance to strike, which is why I'm proud of the fact that I think we've I think we've struck it pretty well. What about highlights of your time here? Are there events or moments that um, stick out for you? Yeah, I think um, you know, sort of particular moments for me have often revolved around contact with uh, particular people. So I've already mentioned Peter Sharple's Sir John Graham lecture in, in 2015, uh, which I think was was a phenomenal experience. Listening to people like Jeremy Waldron deliver the the Sir John Graham lecture has been really, really formative. Some of the ideas that they've expressed around civility, which doesn't mean you know everybody just agrees on everything and we never air our disagreements but it means you respect the people that you that you disagree with I think those are incredibly important ideas the the opportunity just to, to respond to media to go into the media environment has uh, wasn't initially a highlight for me but but has become one I've it's actually been something I've really enjoyed doing because you know you, you get an opportunity to try and say this is why these ideas really really matter and and you have a chance I think to try and bridge the gap between the, the depth and complexity of the research and and you know putting in a form that's actually useful to the public who are listening that actually helps equip them um, and that I think enriches our democracy when we can do that kind of thing and so I think that's that's both a responsibility and we've always tried to take that seriously and not just be you know talking heads because I think there's far too many of those in the media already but it's it's also it's also been kind of fun I've enjoyed that. What about regrets? If you were to go back and change anything that Maxim had done or the way that they stood on a position or the way they engaged on an issue, uh, anything there? Yeah, regrets. I've had a few. 
But then again, <laughs> too few to mention. I, like, I, I couldn't. I, re- I, I couldn't knew resist. You bit. were going to do that. Yeah, like, I, know, I just. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. Well, you know, you, you got to let me get at least one dad joke into this. I couldn't resist a bit of Sinatra for the organisation. I think. I think we could have done better in terms of the focus of the research that we were doing, kind of in a period sort of around 2009, 2011. Um, we could have been more focused and more strategic and, and produced work that would have been more useful uh, to people. Focused um, in what way? Time. You mean the content or you mean the issues that we were engaging with at that time? First of all, the issues that we were engaging with, we, we were really just spreading ourselves too thin across too many issues. And I think it's it's difficult to make a meaningful contribution without actually you know, developing real depth and expertise. So that means sticking with an issue for a period, you know, actually for years at a time to the point where you actually have the expertise and the credibility to be able to say genuinely helpful things. That was one issue. The, the other was, you know, back then, we I think we weren't always communicating or packaging in our, our research in a way that was actually really going to be helpful to people. So it means that there's, you know, perhaps a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of wasted effort there, which is a pity. Sort of on a more personal level, I think the, probably the one regret that I have in my time working here is I didn't always know when to stop caring about what I was doing. And, you know, that sort of played out in, in a few different ways. The classic kind of, you know, go home from work, ask my wife a question, she answers it. Five minutes later, ask the same question because I've got no recollection of having asked it or of her having answered it because my mind's still too engaged in work. That's the trade-off, I think, sometimes of doing work that has a significant purpose to it and that, and that you really believe in. But then with all of these things, I mean, part of the reason why Sinatra came to mind is that all of these things, I think, you, you learn from and they ultimately make you stronger. And I think that's that's certainly been the case for me personally. I, I believe it's been the case for Maxim as an organisation. The things that we've got wrong, I think, I think we've learned from. And I think it's about the best you can say because everybody gets stuff wrong. And the biggest question is, are you going to learn from that and are you going to get better? Uh, and I think I can honestly say that we have. One thing that, that we've talked about quite a lot is that the first thing that anyone ever asks when they're asking about Maximus Institute, oh, how are you guys funded? We're always happy to say that we're completely independently funded, blah, 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 individuals, families, you know, trusts, and that appreciate the work that we do, blah, blah, blah. But as CEO, you're kind of the staff member who has to go out and actually, like, once we've decided what we're going to do for our work, you have to go out there and find, you know, people who actually like it and, and appreciate it and want to contribute to it. And so in, in the conversations and the relationships that you've built over the years with the people who are part of our community of supporters what are the things that you've most appreciated about you know us being a non-profit that's funded by this sort of group of people rather than like industry or, or profit or anything like that it, it's an amazing privilege to go and talk to people and have them you know at the end of the conversation say you know i believe in the work you're doing and, and i'm willing to back that and you know it's always a case i think of of you know, we, we set our own research agenda, so going along and saying this is what we believe is important, this is what we believe matters, this is how we think it should be tackled, and then I guess you find out whether or not anybody agrees with you and, and they're willing to support that. So when they do, that's, that's incredibly encouraging and also incredibly humbling. Because uh, one of the things I've seen over the years is that there are, uh, there are so many good causes that deserve to be funded. And there's a finite supply of dollars. So, you know, when a when somebody decides to support the work that we're doing, it kind of implies that the money's going here rather than somewhere else. So you feel that obligation of stewardship to make sure that we actually have thought well about does this thing need to be done and will it be successful and, and so on. Having the chance to, to sit down with people like just a broad spectrum of people across society, good people who are, you know, who are passionate about New Zealand, that's been really inspiring for me. And I've really enjoyed the contact that I've had, even when it's led to a no. You know, you still have you still have great conversations about, man, can we can we just imagine like the best possible future for New Zealand? Um, and I think that's 
you know, that's actually a lot of fun. I also find it just really enjoyable just to be focused at that kind of level where you're looking to the horizon, you're thinking about, you know, man, what, what could we do? What is possible? And that's personally, that's that's been one of the things that I've actually enjoyed most about my role as, as CEO. It's probably not a natural thing to go and ask people for money. I don't know if anybody sort of, you know, says when they when I grow up, I want to be, you know, I want to be someone that asks other people for money. But it's actually been uh, an amazing blessing. Uh, and Maxim has an amazing community of supporters and you know, we couldn't do anything that we do without without their generosity. So I'm I'm really humbled by that. I'm really grateful to them, and it's been a real privilege to do this work in partnership with them. I mean, with that privilege of meeting so many people, has there been one piece of advice that has really made an impact for you? Probably a couple come to mind that that are sort of about leadership, particularly. One is I was talking to somebody who's a very experienced uh, public leader, leading a very large uh, not for profit a few years ago. Um, and you know, one of the one of the things he said to me was, leaders need to be prepared to have the hard conversation, but it helps to have it in fifteen words or fewer. This is one of the things that I think can often go wrong in in leadership, and and I think particularly in New Zealand, we have a bit of a culture where you don't necessarily say what you're thinking, and you don't necessarily um, kind of come out with the thing that needs to be said. But in a, in a leadership position, you actually have that responsibility. But rather than you know spend too long on it and um, make it into a thing that you dread doing and, and is awful for the other person to hear, if you can keep it you know to the point, um, that sort of that's that's better for everybody. So that that was a good practical piece of advice. And another one was a um, a mentor telling me you know. If, as a leader, you get it right 70% of the time, you're doing really, really well. My natural tendency is to go, oh my gosh, what about that other 30%? But but actually that recognition that we, we don't all get things right. And this is why you need teams around you. This is why you need to be working with, with talented people. And that has been, you know, I've been really blessed to work with really talented people. And that's, you know, part of my journey has been realizing you don't have to have all the answers yourself. You build a team and you tackle these things together. And, you know... Putting that advice into practice and and being able to collaborate with people, you know, in the team at Maxim and experts outside of Maxim has has I think just produced better and better results. As I shift into the role of interim CEO, um, I was wondering if there are any books that I should know about that you would recommend to future Maxim CEOs. I'd really recommend these three books because they've been really significant for me thinking about the the kind of work that I do, and I'd rec- I'd recommend them to anybody who's listening really. One of them is a book called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy called Viktor Frankl. Uh, he survived the Holocaust, spent a couple of years, I think, in a, in a concentration camp. And you read his book and and one, it's just like a brutal account of what life in those camps was like. So it's really eye-opening and really confronting in a way that it's good to be confronted. But the thing that that's really incredible about that is he articulates the way in which people could get through that experience if they had the ability to to kind of see a greater meaning and a greater purpose in their life and and not just feel that their life was just reduced to this experience of being in the camp. And he described people as kind of beings in search of meaning. And I think that's a great way of, of kind of understanding um, a core part of, of being human um, and common ground that we have um, with people who might think quite differently to us about, you know, policy or sports or whatever, we're all beings in search of meaning. So I think that's that's an incredibly important insight and, uh, and a really good book. Another one I'd recommend would be the book The Road to Character by David Brooks. He's a, uh, an author and a, and a journalist at the New York Times. Um, and that book is really about his, his kind of quest to say, what does a really well-lived life look like? And this is a guy who spent most of his life building towards uh, what he calls the resume virtues, you know, the things that look good on your CV. But he said he had a realization that when he looked around, the people whose lives he most admired weren't oriented towards those kind of things. They were actually oriented to what he called the eulogy virtues, the things that people say about you at your funeral, basically. How do you become a person 
who somebody's willing to give a great eulogy for. Um, and so the book is kind of an exploration of that and, and it's um, case studies of a number of, of uh, pretty amazing leaders, civil rights, war leaders, not-for-profit leaders, and so on. And I think it's just a really kind of compelling exploration of the idea of character and a great example of, or a set of examples of, of how you can kind of pursue that in your life. And then probably the third book I'd recommend is, is one that you already know, Joanne, but um, it's, it's a book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, which I think is, is incredibly helpful especially if you do the kind of work that we do in a, in a think tank, it's all about how do you do the kind of work that produces the most value um, by having sort of a really focused attention in an age where we are actually more and more distracted by technology, by open plan offices, by expectations around email and, and, and all sorts of things. And it has been uh, really helpful for me personally in, in terms of thinking about how do I, if I want to do work that's meaningful, um, how do I make sure that actually happens? And yeah, it's it's one that I'd recommend to anybody who's thinking about how to actually translate from kind of those big motivations through to actually tangibly getting stuff done. Well, Alex, there's a lot to thank you for, but for now, we'll just thank you for joining us today for the podcast and allowing us an insight into your experience and the ideas that you've been batting around for the last 14 years. We're really grateful. Thanks, heaps. Thanks, Jeremy. It's been an amazing privilege. If you'd like to hear more from us and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out videos on our YouTube channel, so just search for Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. Thanks for joining us for the Maxim Institute podcast this month. You can search and subscribe to us on any of the platforms where you get your podcasts. So from all of us at Maxim, and particularly from Alex, Matewa, and goodbye for now.